So you are familiar with, many of you, most of you, are familiar with Matthew one twenty three, which is just a recitation of a prophecy of Isaiah that's found in 7 and 14 of uh, the book by his name. Matthew one twenty three says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. God with us. One, one more prayer. Lord, it is my sincere plea today that we will behold your face and we will at least catch a glimpse through these dark tinted glasses that we wear of the glory of your presence with us. May it be seen in the word, and may it not be obscured by my own folly. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I am a... Well, I love Christmas carols. I was about to say something that sounded rednecky and foolish. which that, that I, Things that I often say. But let's, let's keep it uh, appropriate here. But I love Christmas carols. And one of my favorite Christmas carols is uh, Old Little Town of Bethlehem. I, I really like that one. And part of the reason I love that song is because I think that the poetry in the lyrics really captured, in my mind, the paradox of the incarnation. And it's so mysterious to me. Miranda heard a little bit of the of a sermon this morning on the way on the way to church because I am just captivated by this mysterious paradox of the incarnation when this infant is also the infinite God. But this capturing of the paradox is has something to do with this seemingly small insignificant town but it, it hosts the royal birth of the King of Kings and the Creator of the world. That first verse of the song says, Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. So right in the midst of this sleepy little town that probably would not have seen the activity that, that it's seen or that it saw except for the census that has taken place, But right in this sleepy little town, the everlasting light is shining. It's also one of my favorites because it contains a profound little statement that I think shows the birth of Jesus in its biblical theological context. How the birth of Jesus fits into all of the story of Scripture. It says, the hopes and fears of all these years are met... In thee tonight. So in Bethlehem, all of the hopes and all of the fears of all the years up to this point are met. And it is because, of course, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. In this little town and in this child, the fears of darkness and evil are realized. In this infant, the fears and darkness of evil are realized. And there's a multitude of 
examples, but I think that truth is captured well in the account of Herod's fear of the birth of Jesus. This mighty king is trembling because of the birth of this babe in Bethlehem, so much so that he commits this atrocity, this evil act of killing all the sons in the region of Bethlehem, you know, those that were two years and younger. However, the, the hopes of all the years are also met in Jesus, aren't they, in Bethlehem? And that, that is the hope. Not the fears, but the hopes of all the years is what I want to focus in on in this little Christmas sermon this morning. And even further, and in light of what we have heard over the last few sermons, I want to focus on the hope of Emmanuel God with us that is met in Jesus, that he is God with us. So first, I, I, I want to briefly show that the hope of the Old Testament saints is that God would be with them. This is the hope of the Old Testament saints. Second, I want to show that Jesus fulfilled the hopes of God being with his people. And finally, I want us to see that we have great hope now and in the future because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So the hope of Emmanuel in the Old Testament, the Old Testament hopes for the presence of God with them. And I think I want to, the first thing that I need to do is establish that a hope of God being with humans was not original in the creation. There didn't need to be a hope of God being with humans because originally in the creation, God was with man. That's the way it was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve enjoyed unbroken fellowship with God. There was no sin. And in a very real sense, they enjoyed the immediate presence of God. But we know the story. Most of us know the story, don't we? Because of their rebellion and sin, that immediate fellowship with God was broken and they were driven out of Eden and very symbolically driven away from the presence of God. They were driven out of Eden, driven out of that immediate presence of God. And the judgment of death was pronounced upon them and not only them, but all of their progeny, all of their sons and daughters of whom we are members. But we know that God in his mercy condescends to mankind and he works to restore fellowship with them, doesn't he? So he could have just left them to their own devices and said, you're driven away from my presence. Good luck with that. But that's not the way God done it. God works to restore fellowship with them, to make himself known to them, to be with them and they with him. And there's a multitude of references to this, and I don't have all day, I only have a few moments of time. So I just want to hit some of these highlights throughout the Old Covenant. But we see this with Abraham, as God appears to him, covenants with him, and is even understood to be friends with Abraham. And this is something that Isaiah associates with God 
being with Abraham and his seed. That's in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. And of course, this is referencing Abraham's seed. But the focus here is that God calls Abraham his friend, which is said elsewhere in Scripture. And it is immediately associated with the promise, fear not, I am with you. When God makes a covenant with Israel through Moses, His presence, as as we heard even in the prayer a moment ago, His presence is seen and symbolized in the pillar of fire and the cloud through the wilderness. God is with His people. We see it symbolized and even manifested in the tabernacle or the, the tent of meeting, as it is called. We see it Symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant even. And then here again, and this was so interesting to me as I was working this out, we see God and Moses in Exodus chapter 33 speaking. And it's so interesting the way that God with His people is shown as God is speaking with Moses. Exodus thirty-three eleven. Thus the Lord used to to speak to Moses face to face. How does it say? As a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And so here is the meeting place of God and man. And this is showing that God is making friends with man. He is with Man, He is with them. In fact, so important was the presence of God to the people of God, Moses refused to go into the promised land without God's presence with them. Just a few verses later, 33, 14, and 15, and he said, My presence uh, will go with you and I will give you rest. This is God speaking to Moses. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's how important God's presence with man is in the Old Testament. There is an anticipation. We will not go any, any farther until we are assured that your presence is with us. We're skipping ahead A lot of years, but a dark day came in Israel's history when the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God with His people, Israel was taken from them. And this happens in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, and it's because of sin and rebellion, because of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas' sin. And then joyous was the day, In contrast to the darkness of the day, joyous was the day when it was brought back to Jerusalem. That physical symbol of God's presence. 
in 2 Samuel 6. That's when David would stop after a few paces, make sacrifices, and dance before the Lord with all of his might to the ridicule. Even of his wife, we'll find out as the story goes on. But, but even the Ark of the Covenant being brought back to the people of God and then ultimately settling in 2 Samuel 6 in Jerusalem and Jerusalem becoming known as the city of God because this is where God's people, or rather God, dwelled with His people. This is the hope of the Old Covenant It is that God would dwell with His people. In fact, that's why it was David's hope to build a house for the Lord. We understand it as the temple in all of its glory. And this is certainly where worship took place, the formal worship of Israel. But but even even, uh, more so perhaps than that, this is the house of God. This is where God lived. This is where God dwelled with His people. We know that David was unable to build that house, but in another covenant promise, Solomon builds the house of God, and this is where God dwells. But we know that the story doesn't end there. Just as with Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the rulers of God's people again were corrupted by sin, and Israel and Judah divided and then driven out each in their own time, of the presence of God and into captivity. And this was devastating for them because much like the garden, they were driven out of the presence of God. The hope that they had of God dwelling with them, they had now been driven away from. And that's why I think one of the most, one of the most beautiful Passages of Scripture is found in Ezekiel chapter 1. Let me, let me find it and just, just read it to you. I don't have it here in my notes, but as it strikes me, I'll read it to you. In the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, listen, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, or the Chabar Canal, The heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. So here is Ezekiel and the people of God. They are driven away from the presence of God. They are feeling the the forlorning of God's presence. They feel like that God has forsaken them, and God has abandoned them. As a matter of fact, the psalm speaks of uh, them sitting down by the river of Babylon and weeping. They had hung their harps on the willow, and joy the joyous songs have gone away from the hearts of men because they can only feel sorrow that God's presence is no longer with them. But here, Ezekiel is sitting by the same river where they had hung their harps upon the willow, so to speak, and their joyous song was gone from them. And surely he is probably feeling a sense of that heavy burden, but then the heavens are opened, and the Lord appears. And begins to speak with him to say, I have not abandoned you. I am with you. In fact, as I alluded a moment ago when I opened, that our text today is uh, an application rather of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. 
And this is a prophecy where the name of a child that a young woman is going to give birth to is going to bring hope and deliverance in a time that is laden with sin, darkness, and corruption. And what is that hope? It's found in the name. In Isaiah 7, 14, His name shall be called Emmanuel. The hope of the old covenant is that God would be with His people. And the beauty is that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, as we saw in our text today. I hope it comes as no surprise to you that all of the Old Testament, all of its hope, all of its fear, points ahead to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this biblical theological theme of God's presence, that hope of God's presence in the Old Testament, is, is no different. That hope of that Old Testament hope of God's presence with his people is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. One of the things that become that becomes exceedingly clear, I think, in the New Testament is that Jesus dwelling among man is understood to be God. And this is part of the paradox of the incarnation as you behold the face of this infant. And as the shepherds and wise men fall down and worship Him. This is not discouraged, but it is encouraged and in fact uh, uh, exemplified and uh, set for us as an example that we should worship Jesus. How do you worship this human babe? without being a violation of the second commandment. Well, this babe is God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is understood to be God. We only need to think of that famous passage in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and of course then skipping down to 14 for sake of time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you see that John knows that Jesus is God. That's verses 1 through 3. But also that Jesus is God with us. He took on flesh. He became flesh. And He dwelt among us. We can turn a few pages over to John chapter 8, verse 16 through 18. Yet, even if I do judge, Jesus said, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of the testimony of two people... I'm sorry, I lost my place. It's true. It is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, 
and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And you see then that after he speaks this, that the Pharisees desire to kill Jesus because in calling himself the Son of the Father, he is counting himself equal with God. They understood that. And I think that that says something to us about the multitude, the scores and scores of references in all of the Gospels to Jesus as the Son of God. So every time Jesus claims Himself to be the Son of God, we understand that this was, this was Him claiming to be equal with the Father. Jesus is God. And the, Old, and the New Testament writers understood that. They understood that Jesus was God and that Jesus was God dwelling with man. And let me go to Hebrews chapter uh, 1 verses 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, which God, who lies, who never lies, promised before the ages begin, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through. Oh, I'm sorry, my goodness. That was Titus 1. Let's read Hebrews 1. <laughs> I don't have enough book, bookmarks here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, because in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. This is the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's go to Colossians chapter uh, 1, verses 15 through 17. And and I would say that probably most, most of these passages are familiar to you. You've heard them before. He is the image, again speaking of Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He, again speaking of Christ, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Just one more. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. And this is the hymn of Christ, and we're dropping down kind of in the middle of it, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So you see, he's in the form of God. He takes the form of the servant. He is God with us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. These, all of these passages of Scripture, and there are several more that I could turn to, they declare the same truth. The New Testament repeatedly attests that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God dwelling with man. And Matthew here then is in the same company with the rest of the New Testament authors. 
in that he understands this truth as well. He's no different. And that's why he can apply Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel, which gave God's people hope in a day that was overwhelmed with corruption and rebellion to the birth of of Jesus. He can attribute that to the birth of Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of that hope, given to and through Isaiah many years ago. So Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel is given in a time that is filled with darkness and corruption and rebellion. And so Matthew understands here is a virgin that is giving a, a birth to God with us. And it is coming in a time of darkness and rebellion. And it is a fulfillment of that Old Testament hope. Ultimately, that Old Testament hope of Emmanuel is found in Jesus Christ, who is God with us. It is Jesus who fulfills the ultimate hope that God is with us in the midst of overwhelming sin and darkness. In fact, this hope of Emmanuel doesn't only introduce Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, but the book of Matthew closes with a promised hope that God will be with man to the end of the age. Many of us know the Great Commission, and we cite it often as as we ought to do. But sometimes I think that we kind of skip over that closing clause of the Great Commission, which is that great Emmanuel hope that Matthew introduces even at the beginning of his gospel. All authority in heaven and earth, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here is the hope that Matthew opens with, he closes with, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in the beginning of Matthew, these bookends, 123 and 2820, the bookends of Matthew's gospel, it opens and closes with the great and joyous hope that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Emmanuel, God with us. And this great truth, when Matthew closes with it, It is to give encouragement. It is to give courage, knowing that these folks are are being commissioned with sharing the gospel in a hostile environment. But the hope is, go do it, because I'm with you. Because God is with us. This truth gives great hope and courage for the future. And it's to that truth that we will now turn. Emmanuel is courage and hope, now and forever. This promise that God would be with His people to the end of the age gave these early Christians great courage and hope, didn't it? They faced dark and difficult days of persecution and dispersion. When I read the book of of Acts, one of the things that stands out to me that strikes me is the joy that these Christians had. But the other thing is that they were joyous in spite of the deep persecution that they were suffering. 
They were impoverished. They were dispersed. They were spread all throughout the Roman Empire. They had to uproot and leave their home country simply for their own their own safety. These were dark and difficult days. What gave them such courage? What gave them such hope? What gave them such joy? It was the promise that God was with them. God was their friend. They boldly proclaimed the message of Christ and Him crucified because they knew God was with them even when it seemed like no one else was. Jesus fulfilled it that the incarnation, Matthew shows, the gospel show that he proves that he is God with man in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And then he, he promises that he will be with them all the way to the end of the age at the ascension. And like showing that God is with us is the hope of the Old Testament and that Jesus fulfills it then in the New Testament, I could go several different places to trace out this theme. This this was Peter's boldness at Pentecost. He knew that the promises of Jesus were true, that Jesus was who He claimed to be, and that His abiding presence was with them by the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost because the Spirit being poured out at Pentecost was confirmation that Jesus was God with man. And that's why Peter could stand up and declare boldly what just a month and a half ago he denied around the fire at Jesus' crucifixion. Now he is boldly declaring it. What changed? He knew by the power of the Spirit in his life that God was with him and the promises of Jesus were true. But I do want to try to keep it uh, connected to the series that we're in. So in an attempt to do so, uh, and and even especially, one of the things that stood out to me is is Dale leading with those uh, statistics talking about the the fact of loneliness and then the consequences of loneliness. I want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But verse 17 says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles hear it. So there is the boldness. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see that? Even when everyone in Paul's life, surely those that he considered friends, surely those that he thought would stick by him, surely those he thought would be his friends and come to his aid or come to his defense, even those Paul considered his friends abandoned him. Perhaps even at the Moment, the greatest moment of his need. They left him all alone. But Paul is not 
discouraged. As a matter of fact, he is so hopeful and joyous that he doesn't hold that against them. He says, Lord, don't charge them with it. They abandoned me in my, in my hour of need, but do not place that on their account. And the reason that he can stay, say that is that the Lord stood by him. God was with him. Jesus, Emmanuel, was God with him when no one else was. Emmanuel, God with him. I know that some of you listen to uh, Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson's little devotionals uh, in, in the mornings, Things Unseen. And he gave, he gave one, or gave an illustration, I should say, in his devotion that I thought was, well, I thought it was lovely, but I also thought that it was so fitting for this, this sermon. And you may remember it when I, when I talk about it. It was of his son bringing home a Christmas card that he had made during Sunday school. The card had on the front the nativity scene. And then on the inside, that's where the, the children drew. He had taken a, His son had taken a, a unique approach. And, and on the inside, he had the revised standard version's citation of Proverbs 18.24 which is a passage of Scripture we've heard a number of times over the last few weeks. The Revised Standard Version of, of Psalm 18.24 says, There are friends who, who pretend to be friends. And that's what his uh, son wrote. And then he wrote, But there is a friend, dot, 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 all the way across the page. And then when you flip it to the back, it just contained one word, Jesus. That's, that's what Paul discovered to be true, isn't it? That when all of his friends forsook him, even when those that he thought were his friends turned out not to be his friends, they were just pretenders, he found something out. That there is a friend, and his name is Emmanuel. He felt lonely, forsaken, but God was with him in the person of Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit. And I just think that that brings such great hope to us today. Because as much as we desire and strive to have friends or ought to, and as much as we attempt to be a good friend... I think that we would have to admit that we both we fall in both of those categories. We fall in the people that need friends, that could do better to make friends. We also fall often in the category of people who pretend to be friends. So that hits home. We know it. What do we do? We fail. And others fail us. How hopeless a situation is that? But there is a friend, Jesus. There is a friend, Jesus. I think it also brings hope to us because, because I, I thought of just several as I worked my way through this sermon just this year that will, 
will you may have already or will fill in the days ahead the void left behind by someone who was with you last Christmas that won't be with you this Christmas. My grandfather's passed away a few years ago, a couple of years ago, and he was kind of always the one that led the way in Christmas time and read the Christmas story and all of those things. And it's been several years now since his passing. But all of us, or most of us last night, uh, were weeping just simply because of the void that we've in this joyous occasion. Because of the void that we, we felt by Papa's absence. And so I, I, I understand and I know that, that you are feeling that more acutely. Those who are not with you this Christmas. And some of you may even become acutely aware around this time of the year that you should have been a little more friendly because you become aware of how few friends you actually have. Whether they were pretenders or whatever, wherever the finger might be pointed. But may I remind you, for those of you that will feel the sense of void, the sense of loneliness, the sense of forsakenness, May I remind you from Matthew one twenty three of this great Christmas promise that Jesus, regardless of who is or who is not there, is, a, is God with us. He is with you. My prayer is that you, like Mary and Joseph, like the shepherds and the wise men, as you gaze into the face of Emmanuel, God with us, you will be encouraged by the fact that Jesus has made friends with us. And you will be inspired to be a friend who doesn't have any or not many friends. Finally, I want to remind you that the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, as strengthening as in, and as encouraging as I believe it is in the present time, it is yet to be fully realized. Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. Verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Listen, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And God Himself, He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things are passed away. God has always promised to be with His people. The Old Testament had this hope. Had this hope and God was with them. The New Testament, Jesus fulfills that hope. And He is with us. This gives us courage in the here and now. But the fact that Jesus came in the flesh and dwelt with us gives us great hope that He will return 
and make all things new. And in this new creation, the presence of God that Adam and Eve lost in their rebellion in the beginning will be restored and God will be immediately with His people. And in that day, all of those things that separate us, there will be no death, no loneliness, no heartache, no pain, no tears. Because our Emmanuel has made all things new. Beloved, what a deep and abiding hope Emmanuel brings to us. And my prayer is that that hope will fill your hearts today, tomorrow, and every day until the hope of Emmanuel is fully realized and the dwelling place of God is with man and he will be with us. One of the ways that we celebrate the condescension of God to us and the nearness of God to us in the person of Jesus is by remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for our salvation. We're reminded of His nearness. As we smell and taste the bread and we smell and taste the wine. Also, this is an anticipatory meal that we... That we merely taste, right? This is just a small slice of bread. We call it a meal, but it's just a small slice of bread. And just a droplet of wine. So we merely taste it today, but it is in anticipation of the great day of feasting and celebration. When the longed for hope of Emmanuel is fully realized. So today... We come to the Lord's table in contemplation and celebration of our Emmanuel, God with us.